Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Brian. This is our review of Demolition Man, starring Sylvester Stallone, Wesley Snipes, Sandra Bullock, Nigel Hawthorne, Benjamin Bratt, Rob Schneider, Bob Gunton, and Dennis Leary for a few minutes. Directed by Mario Brambilla. Released in October 1993 on a $77 million budget, this made over $150 million worldwide, in spite of being critically panned. So we're doing a three-part series we call Summer of Stallone, where we look at some of Sly's one-offs from the 1980s and 90s. And Demolition Man is a movie I saw in theaters. In 1993, I would have been 16, 17 years old, and I saw this many, many times since. And in fact, to this day... To this day, I will say be well to people as a salutation. And I totally got that from this movie. And I will say greetings and salutations a lot to people <laughs> because of this movie. <laughs> and you know what? I didn't even realize that it was from this movie until I watched it again this time. And they kept saying greetings and salutations. I'm like, holy crap, I say that all the time. I had a boss when I was in grad school, dear friend Patricia, and I said be well all the time to her because I owned this on VHS <laughs> and I watched all this. And she was like, where did you get that from? And she was a bit of a movie person. I said, you ever seen Demolition Man? She was like, yeah. And I was like, they say that all the time in that. So I loaned her my VHS. She brought it back the next day. She was like, holy cow, they say that a lot. Is that where you got that from? I was like, yeah, be well. So, but I still say it. Like to the, today I said it to somebody because I watched this movie recently. So That's yeah, fantastic. I, but no, I, yeah, but you know, I, I laid out my background, man. I saw this, you know, when it was in theaters, bought the VHS, and I still have it somewhere in a, you know, closet here. I saw this in college and it was on TV and it sucked both myself and my wife in. Uh, we were dating at the time and we were just watching TV one night. We were flipping channels and this came on and we're like, what the hell is this? And we watched it. And we got a real big kick out of it. And then every time we saw it on TV after that, we stopped everything we were doing and watched it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so this is like a big one for y'all, like personally. Oh, yeah. We love this movie. I think my wife has seen this one. I'm pretty sure she has and has probably watched it with me at least once. She didn't watch it with me on this review um, because she was like, no. And oh. <laughs> I don't think she dislikes it. It's like Stallone action films are not really her bag. And we didn't have any personal connection to this one together. So like you and your wife do. I think that's cool, though, that y'all have this together. And we have stuff we watch together. So that's really cool. I mean, I remember, man, when this one came out, you know, 1993, I think Stallone was still kind of at the height of his powers. <laughs> This is, I mean, you know, we just did 1986's Cobra, and then he had a bunch of stuff right after that. I know Sandra Bullock was in a lot of things before this, and then was in Speed like a year after this, which really put her on the scene. But I didn't know who she was from anything. I knew who Wesley Snipes was, though, baby, because he was in all kinds of stuff. And this was long before his tax-evading notoriety. He, uh, he was just a martial arts enthusiast action star. I mean, he'd been in Major League and Pastor 57 and all this other crap. And, I mean, I just, I thought Wesley Snipes which was cool, and I thought, man, you're going to put Wesley Snipes against Stallone, because this was in the era when they realized, like, 
we got to put Stallone up against somebody or with somebody. Like he's got to be playing off of somebody, right? This is before we ever got Expendables put together, right? And so they wanted to give him a foil in every film, and Wesley Snipes fit the bill at the time. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, Sloan, I would say, was at a very big point in his career. Uh, he had come off of Rambo success and Rocky success. And I think, when was Rocky four? Rocky four was 1985, 1986. Yeah, so. so he's been long out of the game since that. But he was always into all these action stuff because it was him and Schwarzenegger, right? They were always compared right. to each other. And that's why I really love in this uh, movie when they kind of dig into that. <laughs> We can talk about that a little later, but I like that little dig at him with the whole Schwarzenegger becoming president and stuff like that. I thought I thought that was funny. I mean, I think he he's always had a lot of fun with where his place was and stuff. And I mean, look at this point, Rocky as a franchise was gone because Rocky Five had come out and that just tanked it. And, and if you've ever seen that movie, you know why. And it would be decades before he would come back to it with Rocky Balboa and do all of that stuff and now the Creed films, but. Yeah, I, you know Stallone here was still at the apex, but the the roller coaster was about to tip down the the uh, the you know mountain here, and it was going to be a long, slow descent. He had also done a lot of really badly put together comedies. A lot of those came after this too, um, and we're not really talking about those. But as far as action films go, I mean, I I was down for this. It was right in my wheelhouse. Again, I was in high school. I was into this kind of stuff, and um, I was also very much single at the moment, so see, it was a thing to go see. And so <laughs> I lined up, went and saw this. It, you got to remember too, this movie came out in the wake of Terminator Two which was the biggest action movie in the world, you know, and, and when I was, you know, that age. And so coming into this movie, it, it looked like it's in the same vein as some of that stuff, right? And, I mean, again, and it's loaded with people of the time that you would know from stuff. You know, you would see these actors like, oh, I know that guy. And so I know this person, maybe not Sandra, you know, but Benjamin Bratt was on television and a lot of stuff. People knew who he was. Rob Schneider was still doing the copy thing on SNL and was funny and mm -hmm. all this. And Dennis Leary was friggin' huge. I mean, he was one of the biggest comics in the world at the time. The ref. Maybe. And yeah, I mean, yeah. And he had done, he had done that. So he was just getting into movies. So it made sense, you know, to do this and looks a big budget action movie and it, it again, critically panned maybe, but it got a lot of people in the seats to see it and a lot of people watched it. Now, does it hold up? I don't know. There's some fun stuff to talk about when we get into the tech of this, Brian, but I, I don't know. I, it'll, it'll be fun to walk through here with you, but why don't you give people a plot summary on good old demolition man? If they haven't revisited it recently or maybe new to it and don't know it. And then we'll get into the talk about the movie. It's 1996, and crime is rampant in Los Angeles. Cop John Spartan and violent psychopath Simon Phoenix shoot it out all over the city. But when innocent victims caught in the crossfire of this intensifying war on crime, both John Spartan and Simon Phoenix are sentenced to a state of frozen incarceration known as cryo-prison, where they are exposed to subliminal rehabilitation. After a major earthquake in 2010 decimates the city, Dr. Raymond Cocteau rebuilds Los Angeles into a pacifist utopia where all violence is outlawed and eliminated. Sex is now an electrical stimulus with birth control by science, and even foul language is curtailed by morality censors, which fine any citizen 
using vulgar language out loud. There is a group of underground resistance known as the Scraps, led by Edgar Friendly, who want to restore the civil liberties of yesterday that Cocteau has all but erased. So, Cocteau releases Simon Phoenix back into the world, and we learn his subliminal training has made him more deadly than ever. Overwhelmed by his presence, the police wake up John Spartan, who tries to adjust to this new world while focusing on capturing Simon Phoenix. Uh, Spartan, along with Lieutenant Lenina Huxley, go after the criminal and along the way fall for each other. Aww. There's a lot of back and forth, but Spartan eventually gets the drop on Phoenix and uses the cryo-freeze material to kill him and blow up the cryo-prison. Now, with Cocteau gone, Spartan promises to work together with the Scraps to lead society with order and personal freedom. Spartan plants a kiss on Huxley, an activity that was also abandoned in the future world, and they walk off together. The end. Yay. World is saved. Okay, so lots to unpack there and get into. And I I think we just got to jump right in the movie because the way this one does. Because they have Spartan introduced us flying in on a helicopter right over a burning Hollywood sign in South Central Los Angeles. And all of that stuff going on. It's a war zone, right? And he, he's wearing a green beret. So he's like, I don't know, some Marine person too. And he jump, he does like a base jump into the burning buildings to go after Simon Phoenix here. And this movie takes off like a shot and doesn't explain Jack to us about what is going on other than it is 1996. So it's at the time it was made three years into the future. So in three years, everything was going to be on fire. I thought. It sounds about right. I mean, we had the Rodney King thing going on, so everyone thought Los Angeles was going to be on fire by then. I mean, it kind of was well, at that it, point. It really right. was, yeah. So, yeah. so I guess it wasn't too far-fetched. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, we got a, a one guy chasing down another guy who's committing all this mayhem, and that's going to help everything, right? Well, the joke is, is that Phoenix has told the cops and everybody else stay out of this area and they basically oblige like that. <laughs> but the dang bus drivers keep bringing people to work. And so that's why he's like taking all these hostages and that, but it's also because he is trying to lure John Spartan out. These two have a whole back history that we're never you told much about it, except from exposition from each of them here and there. And I wanted to ask what you thought of that. It's like, I feel like I'm watching part two of something and I missed part one. Yeah. I mean, I guess I didn't really care about the backstory. I just knew that this guy was bad and the other guy was the cop and they were trying to, they're, they're basically arch enemies, right? I don't know that I needed any more backstory than that. I don't really care what Simon Phoenix's crimes were that led to him to be hunted down by, you know, John Spartan. I just knew that they, he was a bad dude and Spartan was the one cop who didn't give a damn enough to go after him. Well, and to be fair, I didn't need a Rob Zombie movie of, of uh, Phoenix's <laughs> upbringing to give me, you know, why he was such a jerk to everybody. I, I needed a little bit more to get me there because, I mean, you've got these pilots talking about, like, man, it got to be crazy to go down there or whatever, and, and uh, Spartan's like, takes a maniac to catch a maniac. And I'm like, okay, so you've already said something there about yourself, that he is just as crazy as Simon Phoenix. And this the whole, like, central, like, 
theme of this movie is that these two guys are just two sides of the same coin. One's the dark half, one's the light half. Yes. Literally. Absolutely. All right. And so that's what they're going to play it as. Right. And I mean, you know, you've got Stallone with his, he's tan or spray tan or whatever, white skin with the dark hair. You got Phoenix, who's an African American man, dark skin with the blonde hair, which is the weirdest choice, but they are supposed to be. Dennis like, Rodman, weird, baby. Yeah. They're supposed to be yin and yang for each other. Right. That's the whole point. Yes. Absolutely. And th- that's why it works. Right. Uh, so, I mean, yeah. And we already set up early on that they call him the demolition man because every time he goes after this guy, something blows up. Yeah, like he's he's notorious for blowing things up. And what happens in this is he gets the drop on Phoenix, who's got him standing in a lake of gasoline. There's, you know, fuel all around. There's, they do all this Simon Says. And then he, you know, of course, he lights the place on fire, Phoenix does. There's a huge explosion. But in the midst of it, Spartan's able to knock Phoenix out and puts him fireman carry style over his shoulders and jumps out of the burning building with him, you know, to, to rescue him not realizing the hostages are still there. But before they reveal that, his captain is giving him a bunch of crap about, hey, man, you got to stop blowing up buildings. Hey, it wasn't even my fault this time, man. Well, it's typical slow. Of course it's not his fault, man. It, and and I think that what we see is it usually isn't his fault. It's almost always Simon Phoenix's fault, but he's the one chasing him, so he gets the blame. <laughs> yeah, but Spartan Spartan does a lot of damage himself, well, as we'll sure, see when we but, get into this. Well, but, yes, he definitely yeah. does. However, I think most of the explosions are set up by Phoenix. They are, they are. But the big reveal is that, oh, there's tons of bodies around here, and Simon Phoenix is like, oh, you didn't release the hostages, say it ain't so, and Wesley Snipes is absolutely playing this to the hilt in this. And I, I am laughing at him because I think he realized – that this script is bonkers. So I'm just going to play this as over the top and weird as I possibly can. <laughs> and you brought up Dennis Rodman. He looks like Rodman. He's playing it just as weird as Rodman, too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think his, his character is fashioned after Dennis Rodman, um, uh, except for like a murderous Dennis Rodman. And I think he does. Yeah, as far as, far as we know, Dennis has not done any of this. So. Well, well, yeah, as far as we know. So, I mean, I think he does a very good job of it, and I think he plays a maniac quite well. I mean, yeah, he he plays unhinged pretty good here, especially because Stallone is playing this so seriously. And I can't tell if that's Stallone doing his usual Stallone thing, because he's not credited as one of the writers on this, but by all accounts, he rewrote you know almost the entire script at one time or another. And so... You know, he always just gets so into what he's doing or whatever. And I'm like, I can't tell if he doesn't realize that's the joke or if that is the joke. That he is so straight, board lace, straight arrow. It's it's almost like he's playing a parody of a character he would play later in Judge Dredd. You know, where he's just Maybe so Judge Dredd the law. was based off of that. No, no, Judge Dredd's a comic book. Ah, well. And so, so, which I don't know if it's true to it or not, and I don't want to get into here. But it's he's playing this so straight, you know, and Wesley Snipes is playing it so fast and loose and it's all over the place. But the whole point of this inciting incident is so that, you know, we get these people sentenced because we got to we got to get them to the future. Right. And we got to put them in the deep freeze. And I got to tell you, man, when I saw this in 1993, this whole idea of the cryo prison and freezing people. I mean, again, we're coming off of Terminator 2 where we've had like, you know, liquid metal frozen by liquid nitrogen and all this crap. So I'm in the m- mode that like we could do this. There were all those rumors that, you know, Walt Disney was on ice and Ted Williams had his head frozen and all this, you know, all kinds of other crazy stuff. Right. And yeah, I, rumors, I could. 
<laughs> but I mean, I, I was in the mode where like, okay, yes, I can buy this. Like I could believe that this might be a future that is possible, but what they're playing this office is then in 1996, this is what they've turned to is turning prisoners into blocks of ice. Well, cryo freezing was a big deal at the point um, that this movie really came out. I mean, it, it was just becoming the rage. And the cryo freezing is a real thing. People have put themselves on ice, but after they died, not as alive. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody knows how to freeze someone and keep them alive in, in a hibernated state. That comes from Star Wars, by the way. Um, yes, it does. But, you know, I like the concept and idea. I just don't know that you needed to be 1996. I think we could have fast forwarded to like, 2026 or something way in the future to kind of get this kind of thing but i guess they thought we were going to have a lot of technology from cryo freezing which was a big deal at the time i mean yeah i i don't know i don't know that i needed it to be 21st century when this movie starts because the whole point is that the 20th century everything was going to hell so fast that we had to take these drastic measures to fix everything right Mm -hmm. so that's why we would do this crazy stuff but so I'm on board for that. What I get a kick out of, and they kind of drop the line in it here, and it took me a few watchings to ever pick up on how this works, is they stick that little sensor on the side of Stallone's head, their Spartan's head, mm-hmm. and he it's supposed to be like subliminal rehabilitation. Right. And I want you to know where my mind went after last season, immediately. That's where these guys got that idea from. Well, I, I couldn't go to that because uh, I've only seen it once and I will never watch it again. <laughs> and to know why, you should listen to our previous episode on After Last Season. But um, I highly, highly, highly doubt that it came from that. I, I, I think this is a concept that is well uh, placed in other things that uh, – you know, being able to alter the mind of someone through uh, kind of a sleep hypnosis or programming uh, of sorts. I don't think that's anything new. You, you've had three kids. Don't they say like you can put like headphones on the mother's stomach and the kid can listen to music and stuff like that? Like people are doing that, right? Of course. Yeah. And a lot of it says that they can hear a lot of people think that the the uh, baby in the womb can hear everything that's going on. And that's why they recognize mom's voice right away. That's very cool. So, see, I get the idea, right? And I kind of like the the gimme of all of this. And because it is setting up a big plot turn, as, as we'll find out in just a little bit. We flash forward 30 years, right? Mm-hmm. And now we meet Lenina Huxley. I love her drive into work in the morning here where she's like, is there any crime? Is there anything to do? And she's bored. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. The, the cops are basically librarians at this point. They are bored out of their mind. No offense, librarians. They get I mean, some really. great lines in here, too. But, you know, I, I love her because she is uh, uh, someone who wishes that. She could have gone back to like, it's like us uh, wanting to go back to like the sixties or the fifties, you know, she, she dreams of being around in the nineties when all this cool stuff happened. And I love the fact that their oldies station is old commercials, commercial jingles, jingles. the hilarious, hilarious. But uh, she is a big into this old school nineties. She's bored as a cop because there's nothing to do. There's never any crime. You see that you, there's graffiti done to one of the buildings and it's immediately wiped out. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah. Uh, so she gets excited because there's something to do and then it's gone and it's like, oh, so I really like her character. Um, everyone else is kind of like, oh no, this is great. This is a great job. We don't have to do anything. 
Yeah, and she's she like her office is littered with stuff from the 1980s and 1990s. She's got like a lethal weapon three poster on the wall, <laughs> and she's got the old snake in a can trick stuff that's illegal. All, yeah, yeah, it's all illegal contraband. Benjamin Bratt tells her, and she's you know laughing about it. And but the thing is, like she's the the thing is that I get about Sandra Bullock's performance is that she, like Wesley Snipes, is either in on the joke or gets it. So she just plays this as like, I'm going to be the most wholesome, like perfect girl character ever. And everything is just wonderful and beautiful, but I really wish I could get some action, mm-hmm. you know, and, but she has no idea like what to do for any of it, though. We find out later she does because she watched a lot of Jackie Chan movies or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She watched Jackie Chan movies. Right. So. That, which is funny, right? And it's another rib because Stallone and Jackie Chan are friends. And so, and th- I think this was before Jackie Chan was like a, as big a thing as he is now, but this was at the start of his American break. So that was topical at the time. But you got, you got her playing again, this, this wholesome character, the show teams thing or the commercials thing. Brian, I had a double CD of like the world's greatest commercial jingles. Oh, Ma- not making that, not making that up. All right. And so I'm like, I can see it. Like I was totally like, yes, that would be funny. That that would be a future conceit. Um, and what we find out is like all the things that have been like changed and outlawed. By Raymond Cocteau after the great earthquake of 2010, because they got all this, uh, this whole Metroplex was created after the big earthquake that swallowed up, you know, a, a chunk of the San Andreas Valley. So you've sort of got this, this sprawling metropolis now that surrounds what's left of, you know, greater Los Angeles, Orange County, all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. in California. And that allows them to get away with having a lot of, you know, weird sets and, and places in that don't exist or you wouldn't think some of this stuff would take place, but it, so it also keeps you from having to shoot in real places and dress them up and make them look futuristic. Cause you can just have sets now. So, um, yeah, but $77 million got spent on a lot of stuff, but it didn't get spent on location. Well, and I like, uh, I like the fact that they're all dressed in like robes. That's their attire. Yeah. They're all wearing like calf, they're wearing like caftans, you yeah, know, just, so, just weird. Stuff like that. But I, I also like when, uh, you know, we obviously have to mention that Phoenix is let out of, of prison. He's, uh, in. Well, yeah, he's not let out. Hearing. He well, escapes. No, he's let out. Yeah. yeah. He's in a parole hearing and then all of a sudden his cuffs come undone and he's, he's basically out. He, he kills everyone in his path. And is on the loose and the cops are watching as murder death kills come up on their screens, which they don't even know what 187 stands for because it's never been done since like 2016. Yeah, it's been years since they've had a murder death kill. So they're all freaking out. They don't know what to do. And um, I love when he goes to the museum and underneath he walks over a clear floor and underneath is an old preserved part of Los Angeles from the earthquake that's still around and they preserved it exactly as it is so you can see what Los Angeles used to look like that's funny yeah and you and you can see the damage that was created on the highway and all that which is exactly what you know I can see museums doing something like that there's all kinds of exhibits like that think about the Venus escape that I caught this time that I honestly I had never caught before is he's He's talking like when the guy's telling him, you know, this is what you're in jail for, yada, yada, uh, the, the warden, he's speaking it back to him in Spanish, kind of mocking him. Mm-hmm. And that's supposed to be the first clue that like this guy had 
he's gotten fed information and then he says a phrase that unlocks all of his stuff. So he knows the passphrase. He's been given all this stuff. And when he walks up to the, like the little terminal on the outside, which is, I, I guess like in the future, we don't have, uh, cell phones and we don't have uh phone booths anymore we have like information towers well you gotta remember too that cell phones weren't around like no that's what i'm saying like back then yeah they they didn't see that as part of you know the communication it was all radio frequency still but he's got all this information and he just starts typing away he's like holy cow look at me go yeah he he has no no, yeah he has no idea where hell any of that came from because he's he's been programmed this way and I get the idea that you could program information into somebody's head like this. All right. And we saw him in a fight a little bit earlier with Spartan. He was pretty good. But when he starts taking out the cops, man, he knows stuff that like he, and he's so super strong and they drop that line later. I'm like, how do you get super strong from subliminal messages? Well, they planted all the programs into his uh, rehabilitation. So he learned it all mentally. So it was all there. So physically, he already had he already had the characteristics physically, right? It's all mental now, so it's just remembering how to do things, and your physical body can take it. So psh, there you go. So just like what they do in the Matrix when they lowjack all that stuff in the exactly, key head, exactly. Right? Okay. So now you know where the Matrix got it. <laughs> Matrix got everything from something else. You're right about that. Well, you know, and I wouldn't doubt that that. I've never heard the Wachowskis cop to that, but it would be funny to ask them that sometime uh, to see if they did. But anyway, Phoenix is causing all kind of mayhem, and Huxley's the one that's like, we, we got to do something. What can we do? And then there's the old cop in the back, mm-hmm. you know, who who was the helicopter pilot, the younger helicopter pilot in the first scene is like, well, you know, back when I was still doing things, we had one cop that could do everything. And I was like, of course we did. We had the the perfect specimen, John Spartan. We got to go get him out of the deep freeze. And everyone, rightfully so, is like, this is a bad idea. <laughs> because <laughs> if we've already got one maniac, let's not put two into our quaint little society. Well, the thing, too, you got to remember is that uh, they think he's a murderer, right? Right. Uh, a, man, right. a manslaughterer. I don't know what you want to call that. But they think he's a bad guy. So why why would you want to bring a bad guy out? Well, because he's the only cop who was able to ever track down Phoenix and arrest him. Now, obviously, Phoenix escaped, but he's the one who could track him down. So he's your best bet, especially when the cops know nothing. My favorite scene, though, is when he does, when Phoenix does beat up all the cops and Schneider looks at him and goes, we're the police. We're not trained to do any of this. <laughs> and it's just just a funny <laughs> yeah. line. Like, like, oh, my. Speaking of which, like his first line is he's like, you've called the San Andreas Police Department or whatever. If you'd like an automated response, press one. one. And I wrote yes. in my notes, I would always prefer an automated response to you, Rob Schneider. Ouch. Ooh. The point is they don't know what to do. And so, yes, they're going to go unfreeze Spartan. And I love how they've got the setup up here with the big cube eyes that he's in right and they're sort of laser cutting him out of it john spartan is released from jail he comes out and immediately asks questions he swears and what happens we get the fines for on improper language love it now we've already been introduced to this once because simon phoenix has been getting fined for swearing and he's just like yeah screw this you know whatever Mm -hmm. and but spartan gets the fines and then we find out that he's in the bathroom and he comes out and says you're all out of toilet paper and schneider looks at him (laughs) and goes he's looking for toilet paper 
what's that? You know, and the guy says, yeah. I don't know. We got in there. You got these three seashell looking things. He doesn't know how to use the seashells. One of my favorite lines from this whole movie. <laughs> Dude, I remember. Like being in college, watching this again on VHS, and like going to the early versions of the Internet Movie Database, you know, and like movie trivia, there were all kinds of trivia about how the seashells worked. Have you ever read any of these? No. <laughs> like a couple of them were like you take two in one hand and you scrape from the back to the front. And I was like, oh God, you know what? Why would you like do that, that no. can't be right. Yeah, right. Why would you? And apparently, it's supposed to work like you turn them in different combinations to get different strengths of water because yeah, this is like a bidet, up, yeah, right? Yeah, it's supposed to be a bidet, which is all it's, but it's, it's a running joke and just became the running joke of the movie. It's like, we're not going to explain it. We're just going to put it out there and let people obsess over it. It's fantastic. Um, it's just fantastic. Yeah, it's a funny joke. It's funny, but what, what Spartan realizes real quick and when the verbal morality statute spits back at him, he's like, Oh, there's where I can get some paper. And he just goes and curses it out. Yeah. And it's that's dink, great. Dink, dink, dink. Spits about at him. He's, I'll be back, back in a few, few minutes. minutes. Yeah, good, Don't good worry line. about the seashells. <laughs> yeah, so, so we have all of this, right? But I love how, you know, the, the cops are trying to figure out like where, you know, what's Phoenix going to do? And he's like, he's going for a gun. I'm telling you. And what I am just blown away by the future here is that they have a museum where there's a quote hall of violence oh, that yeah. is loaded as an armory. Right. Yeah. But because, the best part yeah. is, is what, what do you remember? Uh, for some reason, I can't think of it right now, but what is the computer saying he's going to do first? Oh, it's, they he said he'll, he'll acquire, uh, he'll try to acquire a gang of people yeah. and, and cause mayhem. Right. Yeah. Which he does do, but he's going to arm himself first. And, and yeah. And Spartan's like, no, he's going to go get a gun. Where do you have guns? Well, the only place that has guns is the museum. All right. right. That's where we're going. <laughs> Yeah, and we go to this museum, and Chris Phoenix is already there, so he's, he's again, in the Hall of Violence and all this. And, I mean, he loads this place out, all right? Blows it to the hilt. Yep. And Spartan shows up, and he's got his glow rod or whatever the hell that thing's supposed to be. And it, I think it knocks you out with, like, a touch or something, which is, I don't know, this is like out of a Philip K. Dick story, I think. And he rolls into there, and within, like, moments, right, he and Simon Phoenix have completely destroyed half of this museum. <laughs> it's gone. They've gone into yeah. the old Los Angeles, too, and destroyed half of that. But let me ask you this, though, Brian. Okay, I get the idea that if you're a utopian society and you want to kind of reflect back on your past, you would have a museum and a hall of violence, and you would have guns on display. Why on earth would you have live ammunition <laughs> in, the in abundance yes, yes. Loaded. I don't know. Or cannons with cannonballs and ready to be fired. Yes. Yeah, that, that was brilliant. Probably because nobody knows how to use it, which this kind of blew my mind. Like, how old do you think that that cop, the the boss cop is? The, the how old can he be? Okay, he's so gotta let's, be 50. Like, let's know. Hold around. on. Let's, let's say he's 25 no, in he the opening scene 25. in 19. No, 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 no. Say, say, say he's 25 in the opening scene in 1996. This is. 29, 30 years later. Okay, so, so he's John 56. Spartan is 74 yeah. years old. Right, but he but he looks like he's 36 or no, whatever. No, no, I know, but so he's, se he's yeah. 74 years old, which means right. that in 1996, which is uh, 36, 30, 46. It was 30 years before this. All right, so he was in his 30s, right? So, right. but the, 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 the head cop, the one who keeps telling him that he's wrong and doesn't like him, blah, blah, blah. That guy oh, you're talking about the, the, uh, the chief. Yes. Yeah. He looks like he's 50. So he was around. 
right. when this all he doesn't have, have any idea who John Spartan is? He knows yeah. what happened before this, right? I mm-hmm. mean, he has to. He's got knowledge of the past. So they don't acknowledge anyone who's old enough to know the past knows anything about the past, which just kind right. of irks me because they should know. I can see Rob Schneider's character and uh, the other guy's character not knowing anything about it because they're probably, like you say, in their 20s. They never saw it. But right. but the the chief and obviously we know the uh, the helicopter pilot knows everything about it. But the chief should have had some knowledge because he's got to be in his fifties. There's even that older guy, the kind of the chubby guy that's like greetings Lenina Huxley and does the sort of wave in front of her because they don't touch oh, each God, other in the future the either. Like like that dude's at least like fifty. I'm like yeah. yeah, like they like he would know unless they shipped all these people in. They could have had their brains wiped. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know. I didn't see the little men in black clicky thing though that it did that. Well, but if they can do if they can do uh reprogramming in the prisons, yeah. they can probably do it outside. I mean, look at what they use for sex, right? They they do mention they do mention that like everything is so controlled that like there's stuff put in the food and the chemicals and in the air and everything to kind of control people. Yeah. So it's like they're all they're always on sort of a mellow high. Yeah, so see, because they of the way reprogram the, the, them that yeah. way, I suppose. But so it's I guess yeah, it is dumb, but here's why it's dumb, though, Brian. In a movie that goes out of its way to explain everything to us, they don't explain any of that. And right. this movie's nearly two hours long, all right? Mm-hmm. So, like, they could have, like, dropped a few lines here and there to do this, because the movie's full of drop lines that are supposed to explain everything. They could have done that, and it's lazy, because what they're trying to get to is these these action set pieces. And what I'm arguing about is, yes, it's fun to watch Wesley Snipes and, and Sylvester Stallone like break a lot of sugar glass and, and blow through stuff and fall into old Los Angeles and all this other, you know, junk. But the plausibility of that is stupid for multiple reasons. One, if you had a museum of guns and if you go to a museum and there are guns, they are not loaded and there is no <laughs> munition nearby for them. Secondly, gunpowder degrades over time. All right. So at best, it might just light a small fire. All right. Much less, it probably blow up in your hand when you tried to shoot it. Now, the coolest thing they do is they introduce like the rail ray, ray gun thing yeah. that he gets was like the last weapon known to ever be made. That thing was kind of cool because it looked like it came out of you know a, a video game or something. But everything else here it was just, I, I'm sitting there going like I know I'm not supposed to pick this apart, but this movie is insulting my intelligence. All right, because it there's no way these things one would be in that abundance together. Yeah. And this is another plot problem going forward because Spartan picks up a pistol at this thing and he carries it with him the rest of the time and he's got tons of ammo. And I'm like, where the hell did he get all the ammo? Oh, he's got it all in his pocket, man, cuz he keeps pulling out, he keeps dropping the old shells and pulling out the new ones. I so. guess, man, but they don't even make it anymore. Like that's what that's the part that frustrates me about this is it's just dumb. Well, they must you have know? found and a it's... cachet of something, but I agree that was kind of a weak point that they could have explained a little better by finding a bunch of the ammunition down in the sewers. That would have worked, but you know, whatever. Sure. Um, but we do have to talk about uh, the main point here, and that is that uh, Phoenix goes to confront Cocteau, and mm-hmm. he's not able to shoot him. He, yeah. he tries, but he, he can't pull the trigger as part of his training. And so Cocktail is being all cocky and telling him what his job is supposed to be and basically down, uh, uh, degrading him, telling him, you need to get out there and do what I told you to do. That's why you're here. So get out there and kill Edgar Friendly. And Edgar Friendly is Dennis Leary's character, and he is a guy leading kind of a resistance down below. And they come up and they steal food a lot from the people and cause a little mayhem. They try to do graffiti. They try to do all sorts of 
of crimes that just get wiped out when they go back under. And he wants this person gone because he's a stain on his perfect society. So that's why Phoenix has been brought back is to kill him. Meanwhile, the cops show up and Spartan sees this and uh, he's able to scare off Simon Phoenix, quote unquote, and r- save uh, Cocteau. Right, who didn't need to be saved at that moment anyway, right. because Phoenix couldn't kill him as it was. But we've the thing is, like, this is a big reveal, and it's kind of neat to do a big reveal like this at the middle of the movie. Yeah, you know, because usually you would save this to like the end or something, right? But they're blowing this now, but they've already done it. Because if you hear the way he says to him, like, "Don't you have someone to kill?" Well, if you mm-hmm. go back ten minutes before when Phoenix is at the Correct. little teleport thing and getting information. It like hypnotizes him for a second. And said, "Don't you have someone to kill?" And it's Cocteau's voice. Yes, right. I'm like, if, if you're this powerful, you have, you have, yep. you have, yeah, you have lackeys to like do that work for you. <laughs> like this is this is a not a good plan. Voice, yeah. yeah, I mean, really, don't use your own voice on your on your murder death kill spree uh, commands here. But yeah, that's the thing that got me. Though, like, that's by the time that reveal happens, the only thing you get is that Phoenix can't harm Cocteau. Exactly. Right. But you already know Cocteau's the bad guy. Yeah, like, and I clearly think we, we set that guy. up early. I, I think that was set up pretty yeah. early. So we knew going in that he was a bad guy. But um, I love the fact that uh, he claims Spartan saved him, so he's going to take him to dinner. And the restaurant is Taco Bell. <laughs> and the best line is Hugsley's line, oh, yeah, Taco Bell won the franchise wars. <laughs> so everything yeah. is Taco Bell now. Huh. Yeah, because Taco Bell was the restaurant that signed on to do the promotional time. Oh, yeah. I remember no, going to Taco Bell. I think Bell that's hilarious, though. The, with the that. franchise wars. Yeah. I, I thought hmm. that was awesome. I, I just think that was Let me funny. just say you something, Brian. If if we live through the franchise wars and Taco Bell wins, I'm going straight like plant eating for the rest of my life. <laughs> right? That, is not, <laughs> yeah, that is not going to happen. No, no offense, Taco Bell, but no. Oh, plenty of offense so. for me, Taco Bell, because your food is crap. But <laughs> either way. Um, I love the fact they're at the dinner. They're all dressed up to eat at Taco Bell. And you're thinking, well, okay, so now we're in a fancy restaurant. So everything's Taco Bell. They're going to get like these nice, delicious meals. And they get this little teeny weeny like taco portions put on plate. And there's no meat because killing animals is bad. So we don't do that. So <laughs> he's just looking at it like, yeah. what the hell? Good thing I'm hungry is his yeah. line, I think. And that was just great. Yeah, exactly. Ooh. Everything's bad for you, right? Yeah. And we do get the flash of Friendly and like his crews with their little periscopes from underground. They're getting ready to make a raid on the restaurant or whatever at this point. And they come in and they're like a gang out of Mad Max or something. <laughs> they got motorcycles and they're just messing stuff up. And of course, you know, Spartan's like, hey, I'm going to go take care of this. You know, y'all get me like a cow or something to chew on. And he, you know, it, it's the dumbest fights, right? Like, he beats the crap out of one guy with a stick, and then he drops a big tent on another dude. He drops a tent and, on, he, on a bunch of them. Yeah, on a bunch of, like, the gang, right? But he realizes in the middle of it, when he bumps one of them, that the guy just drops, like, you know, some of the goo food or whatever. And he realizes all this dude was doing was stealing food. Like, what's this all about? You know, and you can tell, like, he's already starting to question this. Oh, yeah. Well, I think he's been questioning it all all along, but now he's got another reason to wonder what's going on. You know, he has no idea about the plot against Friendly at all yet, right? The only thing he's there to do Mm-mm. is stop 
uh, Phoenix. That's his main job, right? So he doesn't know what this is all about other than there's people yeah. causing problems and he has to go do it. So then he gets pissed off and says, you know, you know, I- I'm all for stopping crime, but not when people are just trying to feed themselves. Uh, so that kind of introduces us to that. And the next thing we see is, uh, them down in the, uh, well, the next thing we see is them going back to their domiciles and yes. <laughs> Lieutenant Huxley asking if, uh, you know, because of all the violence, it made her a little, you know, excited and maybe they want to have sex. And, right, you know, Spartan's like, uh, right, right now with you, <laughs> uh, hell yeah. <laughs> And so then she's like, all right, sit down. I'll be right back. She comes, <laughs> she comes out all in this robe and she hands him a towel, which, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. What'd you think that towel was well, for, we know by what the that way? towel was for. <laughs> and <laughs> can I tell you, can I tell you though, in 1993, I probably paid no attention to that. Well, Only not. this time did I ever notice that towel. I'm like, well, we know what that's for. Absolutely. You know, but like she does it so nonchalantly, like, well, this is for you. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So, we're just admitting that, sure. Well, you we gotta clean up the mess somehow, right? There's no touchy touchy. <laughs> so then she gets him the virtual reality thing, and he's sitting there like, "What the hell's going on?" And she's sitting on the other side, and she's got her eyes closed, and she says, "Okay, we're about to begin." And he's like, "Begin what? Having sex, silly?" He's like, "What?" She goes, "Just just close your eyes and relax." So he does, and of course, all these images of Herg are flashing into him, uh, his view and all this, and he's getting excited and this and that, and all of a sudden he freaks out and takes it off, and she's like, oh, you've, <laughs> you can tell she was just about there, right? <laughs> because she's like, <laughs> well, you broke contact, and she goes to put it back on him so she can finish. <laughs> No, but you know what? As as she should, by the way. Oh, absolutely. But, oh, man, so good. So good. What a scene. Well, it's funny, though, because because he does all this after, like, what about the hunk of chunk and the da 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 and all this oh, stuff? Oh, my she's favorite. Like, yeah. She, exchanging she, bodily we fluids. Sex, I wasn't having sex. I want a bone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but but really, I love her response. Like, how revolting, you know? Oh, like, yeah. oh no, fluid transfer. And then, like, I, this is even the best part is she takes total agency for herself here. He leans in, tries to kiss her, and she's like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> and um, she's like, "Get out of my domicile now!" Yeah. And just points, and he's like, oh, "Okay." And he sort of walks away like a wounded puppy. Not that he doesn't have any towels in his domicile, which of course he doesn't know what he's got in his domicile. Three seashells, finally, uh, when he's looking at his domicile. But yeah, well, we see that. But we also see too something else. Like he's starting to watch police videos at home, which is this is like a Stallone thing. Like he does this in so many movies. He did it in Cobra last week. He does he does it next week in the specialist. He but he picks up like a ball of yarn. (laughs) And what we oh, realized God, is yes. part of his subliminal training, we'll learn later, was that they taught him how to knit because it would make him relax. Oh, so funny. <laughs> and the first thing I wanted to do was knit a quilt. I could do that in my sleep. Oh, just a great, great little thing to get on him. And <laughs> it comes back later when he's got a big hole in his shirt. He's like, oh, you tore your shirt. He goes, oh, I could fix that in a matter of seconds. I Just give me a needle. And then he's like, did I just right. say that? <laughs> No, but he but he doesn't make good for her. He makes her a red sweater. Yes, like as an for tomorrow. Apology. Like I'm I'm sorry about last night for being a complete pig. Here we go. Here's a sweater. <laughs> <laughs> that and was she's pretty like, good. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean it's funny though, right? Yeah, I mean it's all played for laughs because 
This is the thing, though, and what I what I realized watching it this time was like this movie takes a fifteen minute break from action movie to do this stupid gag, you know. And I'm like, man, that's bold for an action movie in 1993 because these things are supposed to be like 95 minutes, and the fact that this one stretches to almost two hours and does all this crap means that they are taking chances in this. And I, by tell of the internet, there's like an even longer version that existed oh, and they had wow. to cut it down to get it to this. Well, I would love to see that, but uh, what I mean, you know, what I like is that they're exploring the world that as it is there, and mm-hmm. I like that they're giving us more insight into the world as it exists. That in most action movies you wouldn't get. You just get blow this up, blow that up, fight, 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 whatever. But they're actually giving us insight into this world that has been created for them and how messed up it is. And I, I, I dig yeah. that part, right? Um, we uh, get at this time that Phoenix has broken into Cocteau's apartment because he has all the access codes and he's waiting for him. He's changed the, <laughs> the keyword to turn the lights from lights to illuminate and deluminate, which I think is funny. And he demands that more of his friends are set free so that he can get rid of John Spartan and Edgar Friendly. And, of course, Cocteau being a moron agrees to it because he asks if they're murderers. And Phoenix says, of course not. And uh, so he's like, okay, then no problem, and gets them out. So, of course, his band of thugs, which I think is like seven or eight strong. There's a lot of people that he got on thawed. Includes our, you know, former governor of my state, Mr. Jesse Ventura. Yeah, I saw Jesse. that. Well, you know, Jesse and Sly and Jesse's friends with with, uh, uh Schwarzenegger too, so they throw that old boy a bow and every now and then. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, is is Ming the wrestler one of his bad no, guys? No, but it looks like, looks like him, doesn't he? No. Yeah, it, it really does. It was, and I looked at uh, I, I did a double take a couple times, but no, not him. But funny. So so the, you know, they, they get on a mission here and they're gonna go find Phoenix and put him in the hurt locker, right? And and Huxley's response is like, Yes, let's go blow him. You know, and it's like the fifth time Stallone's had to remind her, like, away, like, no, blow him. Away. Yeah, we got to screw up all the she little idioms. Up all the idioms, yep. You really matched his meat. Yeah. You know, and all <laughs> that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's, they, they, they've joke. had fun Good with that. Time. But, you know, you don't want to know why that works, though. That works because Sandra Bullock plays it off so straight. Oh, absolutely. If she played it off any differently, it wouldn't work. But she plays that so straight and so, like, innocently that. It's funny to watch Spartan just sort of, you know, get incredulous with her about it. Like, you please learn that. for everything you know about the eighties, you don't know how we curse or how we talk, which is kind of funny. <laughs> like, I think it would have even been like a deeper layer of her, her characters. Like when she got home, maybe, cause I don't, I didn't see the verbal morality centers in everybody's homes. So well, maybe like, you know, she would let them slip there or something. Could be. Like, that would be it more fun. Be. I, I, the morality sensors are everywhere except for the main outdoor areas, right? They weren't anywhere near there. They were all in all the buildings, it seemed, um, except yeah. the museum. Yeah. Um, the museum didn't have it in the Hall of Violence for some reason. Uh, that yeah. blew my mind. They had them beforehand, but not in the Hall yeah. of Violence. Whatever. Um, yeah. but, but, but that's kind of the running joke, too, in the movie is everybody, time somebody drops a curse word that's not supposed to, it's just in the background. You hear that little. That's one of my favorite parts of this movie is the attention to detail that they put on there. Every time someone says a curse word, you hear that in the background. And I think that's brilliant. And like I said, the only times we didn't is when they're in open areas where there's no nowhere to have one mm-hmm. or they're in like uh uh the office offices cocktail's office doesn't have one 
and also in the Hall of Violence for some reason doesn't have one there. But everywhere else that we see, if they're in an, uh, a public building or anywhere else, it seems to be there. We don't see them in their domiciles, which I'm guessing is because they can do whatever they want in their domiciles for or whatever. Um, but we do, we do see them in all the other public areas, um, that are not like open space. And I, and they, and, and they, they, they tick them off every time, which I think is hilarious because it's subtle. It's in the background, but you do get to hear it every time someone says something they're not supposed to. So, so we go now though, and our crew, they don't have them underground either because now they run into Edgar Friendly and his group of people. And we get Dennis Leary doing a bit about wanting to eat like a greasy pork chop while naked with some jello or some nonsense. I don't know. I think this was part of one of his bits before. And I had flashbacks for a minute, Brian. Flashbacks to Superman 3 with Richard Pryor doing his little stand up routine and all this stuff. And I remember I'm like, this is in like all kinds of movies. Chris Rock did this in an action movie too, where he just breaks and does kind of one of his bits. Dennis Leary does a bit and it kind of took me out of the movie a little bit because Dennis Leary is a good actor. All right. And only discovered later that he could act and do things beyond his own bits. And they, it feels like they just shoved him in this movie because he's sort of leading this, you know, I don't know, neo libertarian resistance or something to whatever Cocteau's got going on uh, up top. And it's like he exists there to stand there, look kind of greasy with that beard and then do the bit. And the bit kind of took me out of it. Like, I get what he's trying to say. He's like, I, just, I, I want things to be whatever they want to be, you know. But it was almost too much at that point in a movie that is, like, completely too much. Well, I don't think the bit was too bad. I just think that Edgar Friendly wasn't a main character in this in this film. He is the person that Phoenix is going after. But his role is very limited, uh, basically, to a disruptor function. Um, but other than that, he's really not that important, uh, until the end when he's kind of given the keys to everything, but either way, and he even says right out front, he's not a leader, right? He He's not a leader. Yeah. That's not what he's there to do. He just likes to cause some ruckus if he feels like it at times. And, you know, that's great. The best part of this whole scene though, is when, uh, they get down there and, uh, Huxley and what was the other, uh, other cop's name? Do you remember what? I don't know. I was calling Benjamin Bratt. Yeah, I don't that was remember his, what his actor. name was in the movie. But either way, um, when when they're down there, they're like, "Oh, disgusting! The smell is awful." And you're thinking, "Oh, it must be the sewer." But then Spartan's like, "Oh yeah, oh that, oh yeah." And then you find out that he's going after burgers, and so he asks for a burger and a beer, and <laughs> he pays for it with uh, Hugsley's Rolex watch um <laughs> and so he's eating this burger and she says and he's like oh this is so good and she goes just don't ask where the meat comes from he's like why do you see any cows around here <laughs> and he's like mm -hmm. asks in spanish what the meat is and she tells him it's rat and he looks at it and he's like looks at her and he says yeah. rat it and she's like yep and he goes Starts eating it. And he's like, you give me a rat burger? You're too bad. Yeah, not bad. And he keeps eating it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's meat, and apparently it tastes really good. So there you go. Why not? <laughs> but just a funny scene. And then, of course, the the thugs have entered down there, and mayhem ensues. And we find a 19, what is it, 1966 
whatever Oldsmobile Cutlass. I mean, it's it's this muscle car with this huge engine in it. Of course, Huxley knows everything about it because she's obsessed with the 20th century. And even though she doesn't know other things, she knows this useful piece of information. And they get in the big muscle car chase, and we do get a good chase here. I gotta say, like for an action set piece, the chase through the tunnels and everything with Phoenix and the bad guys shooting it out and everything, it's pretty good. Yeah. Like it, it works out pretty well. You get. Stallone jumping from his car to the little futuristic little car, which is funny because the car that Simon Phoenix is driving around in looks exactly like those trike things that you see nowadays with the two wheels up front and the one in the back. It's just got a hood on it. I'm like, I've, you see those now, so it's not that far away. But, of course, they shoot it all to heck and back, and it, it ends in a big crash because it's just a big action set piece at this point. And he can't quite get him at this point because I had forgotten. I was like, is this where the climax happens? But it's not. It's sort of the climax teaser, which, again, for an action movie in the 1990s, this is bold that it's going to keep stretching out its length like this. Oh, for sure. And, you know, you get the point where they're doing the chase and, and Phoenix gets a hold of Spartan and he's trying to basically get his head cut off with the road. <laughs> and mm-hmm. he, he drops the line that the hostages that he was sentenced to cryo prison for were all dead before he got there. Like he had already killed them. Right. Um, and I think that's a huge line, but they never pay it off. Like they don't, I know they don't bring it up I'm like, for everything that's getting recorded around here later on at the end. He doesn't go like, Oh, by the way, I'm not going back to prison. Right. You know, and now they know he, they yeah. don't even show him stating his case that he never killed him in the first place. Uh, it was kind of like, um, well, what was the point of that? <laughs> and, and that's kind of, well, yeah. I, I mean, I didn't need to know that. Like it could, it honestly, it doesn't play any differently. All right. Like, he doesn't show any, he never shows any remorse for it. Like, he talks about, like, being mad he's in prison because his wife's beating, you know, her fist on the, on the glass. And he's the one that kind of reveals, like, that whole bit about how I'm supposed to be asleep, that ain't how it was, you know, and, and all this stuff. And so you get the sense that, like, this is actually kind of inhumane, what they're doing to these people. It's not any different than putting them in a cage, which I think is the statement they're trying to make. But, he never once says, I'm really sorry for all those people that got burned up in the building. Like, he doesn't seem to care. It's like, oh, that's just what happens. Yeah. You know, and so, so, so to drop that line and then not pay it off, I'm with you. I'm like, it angers me. I'm like, that's lazy. Like, you know, but this movie's full of drop lines. Why would you throw that in there and never pay it off? Right. You would think at the end he would be like, uh, I, I need to tell you that, uh, Phoenix admitted that all the hostages in my case were dead before I uh, blew up the building. Or something, anything, and it never, never comes up again. We learn about it. He doesn't really even react much, and that's it. And so it was like, I'm with you. I'm like, that should be a big reveal, and it does nothing. So kind of a, a dropped opportunity there. Maybe it's in the longer version, and they had to cut it. But <laughs> who knows? I don't know, but but we get finally where Phoenix decides he's he's tired of dealing with Cocteau, and he knows he can't shoot him, but it doesn't mean one of his goons can't. And so goon number three blows him away, and they throw him in the fire. They throw him in just your standard, what I would assume to be clean, burning, propane gas fireplace, oh, yeah. Brian. Mm-hmm. When Huxley and Spartan show up, 
he is like gone. He's turned to ash. Do you know how many thousands of degrees that fire had to got to? <laughs> it's not a crematorium. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. It is. Not, it is an open flame. Just it's almost like just like a water feature, but it's fire. It's mm-hmm. like he's not even putting out a lot of heat. Yeah. You know, it's just there to look cool. And I, yeah, the, it would have been better if they just threw him up the building and like we found like his blood all over his seat, and they'd have been like, okay, obviously he killed Cocteau. That was kind of dumb to me. I was like, yes. Yeah, and to be okay, able to yeah. identify. Cocteau by the shreds left of his clothes. Burnt. Maybe he was the only one that wore that shade. I don't know. Could be. I do like the assistant who says, I am a very good assistant and I would be happy to carry on my role in your administration, sir. (laughs) To Phoenix. Yeah. Yeah. Glenn Glenn Shaddix is the actor. He's in, he was in Beetlejuice. He's been a lot of stuff. (laughs) He kind of always plays that really eccentric sort of over the top thing. It was good. I liked his character. Yeah. Yeah, he's funny. Yeah, because he passes out a lot and is kind of just aloof and funny uh, in there. But anyway, we're getting to the big action scene here because Spartan and Huxley arrive. They start taking out some dudes, and Huxley actually gets to shoot one. Well, yeah, because she's appalled by the fact that she's killed someone because she never had to do that before. But we do have to mention that Phoenix, after he takes out Cocteau, has now gone back to the cryo prison to release all of the people he knows. Um, from cryostasis. So they're in the process of dethawing and re, um, animating, I guess you could say, all of the thugs that he worked with before when, uh, Spartan and Huxley do arrive. And what I don't get is that Phoenix has him trapped in that claw and it can shoot the hell out of him easily, you'd think, and misses every time. Is he purposely missing him just to play with him or what's the deal yeah i think he's just doing the standard bad guy thing and screwing around with him because i mean he's done that most of the movie right so he's just playing with him which is of course his huge mistake yeah that makes sense but it just was kind of stupid like he had him and then of course once once he gets that piece and he's freezing the arm so he could break it off uh shouldn't have phoenix shot him at that point but no he doesn't and i i'm with you man the fact that he's able to drop all of that cryo crap on the ground and then throw the little spark that freezes everything and doesn't get touched or hit by it or anything and is able to escape seems a little far-fetched it's a little convenient very what convenient. it is and look, this is a scene I'm telling you, it's ripped right out of T two where they drop the liquid nitrogen on the on the you know, T one thousand and Austin La Vista baby and he shoots him, but it's not nearly as cool. It is dumb. But it's an it's an effect I I saw played years later in Jason X. It's almost the same thing. I do like the effect that they uh, the the detail that they had of blood actually frozen blood coming off yeah. too. I mean at least it wasn't all gray it, they actually show frozen blood coming off so sure looks a little more potentially realistic maybe not but i mean that again they did that in jason x too years later yeah. and so and i i remember thinking about that seeing this but anyway it's the end friendly shows up speechifies for a little bit and then spartan and huxley agree to fluid transfer but the coolest part about that is that when he kisses her i'm like yeah, that's kind of weird and then she grabs him and plants one back on him it's like okay so clearly she's okay with this now so well that's all there, there's our now, sign off baby but here's one yeah. thing that also bothered me about this movie and it was a theme in the first part of the movie um we find out that spartan's wife is dead from the earthquake mm-hmm. but the daughter may be alive he doesn't ever well want to know they, like there's a scene though where he's gonna look up no no and she's gonna they, look like, up. Pa- 
Yeah, and he talks her out of right. it. Now that the world is saved, wouldn't you think he'd want to actually find his daughter at that point? Because, I mean, this dude's going to be all over the news. You, you see, Bride, that was going to be the plot of Demolition Man 2, but they didn't they didn't let me make it. Yeah, so I just kind of was like, well, can we at least look her up and make sure she's alive? Or or put an end to her like she died too because what was she would be uh well she wouldn't be that old I suppose she'd be like forty but I don't know I felt like they should could have done something with that too and never did so that was kind like of they funny. they should have never introduced that like it no. should have just been the wife and then the wife exactly. expires in the in the earthquake now he's gonna, that's tragic now he's gonna get in with someone who's probably in her twenties and is younger yeah. than his daughter. <laughs> and right. not care where his daughter is. I, I, that kind of bugged me, but whatever. It's kind of like Hollywood, though. I mean, you know, well, so, I'm sure that happened every day. So. There you go. <laughs> These, well, we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, Brian, what are yours for Demolition Man? I said it at the beginning, and I'll stick by it. I love this movie. Um, it's fun. There are a lot of faults, absolutely, in the the movie itself and you know how it was executed but it's a fun fun movie i laugh all the time when i watch this movie i laughed so hard last night watching this and i will always laugh watching this there's some really great lines in here there's some really great scenes um there's some fun stuff that goes on if you're looking at it as an action movie then you're probably going to be disappointed in this movie it's just it does nothing on that sense but if you're looking at it as an action comedy and just enjoying the ride that you get taken on this movie does a lot for me and i love it and even today i think it's still funny and i i get a kick out of it so i'm going to give it a large popcorn i really like this one you know this movie holds up better than i thought it would Honestly, because I expected like, oh, this isn't going to work like it used to. And yeah, there's some dumb stuff in it and there's stuff that's kind of dropped. But goodness sakes, it didn't need to be any longer. If anything, it could have been a little tighter and they, they wrap it up a little bit. Because, I mean, it's an hour and 50 something minute running time. It's really an hour and 44 minutes because all the end credits are long. Um, yeah, the best parts of this movie are the fact that Wesley Snipes and Sandra Bullock aren't taking themselves too seriously and it's funny in it. And it sort of works. And all the fish out of water stuff more or less works. Um, the ending's a little clunky. I, I wish it was a little bit better. But I think you said it right, Brian. If you're watching this for the action scenes, this isn't a really good action movie. This is a good action comedy. And Stallone struggles at comedy. Sometimes he's really good. You know, He can do something. And most of the time, it's bad. It's real bad. <laughs> um, like Rhinestone, for instance, or, you know, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. There's several examples we could go through. But... In this one, it works because the supporting cast makes it work. And I think the direction's good. I think it's fun. So it's a fun movie. It's not great, but it's okay. So I'm going to give it a large popcorn. I think it's it's just on that edge for me, but it's just enough fun to be large. And I had a good time watching it, even though I knew it was, it was a little bit longer than I wanted it to be. I still enjoyed it. And so, yeah, I'll give this one a pass and, and say large popcorn as well for Demolition Man. All right. <laughs> So this has been a lot of fun to go through, folks. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of Filmstrip. You can find more episodes in our archive section on the website, filmstrippodcast.com. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you find podcasts that you enjoy. Just give us a subscribe. And if you like the show, please leave us a positive review on that platform as it will help push the show up into the numbers and let other people find it. And, hey, follow us on Twitter. The show account is at filmstrippod. 
You can follow me at Brian Thomas 878 on Twitter as well. Fantastic. And if you see our tweets about the show, please share them. We appreciate the support. Until next time, for Brian, I'm Jay. You've been listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.